Shall we uh, pray just before I start? Lord, thank you for your living word. Thank you for this scripture. Thank you how you speak to us through it. And I just pray now as, as we look at Acts 17, Father, would you encourage us uh, and speak into our hearts and minds. I give you thanks, Father. Amen. Well, I want to uh, start with a warning because tonight my talk has the potential to offend. In fact, in some countries, I could be accused of breaking the law. I might be put into prison or executed for what I say tonight. And yet, all I will be doing will be speaking out the claims of Scripture. Because tonight's theme is the gospel points to the one true God. And it's that very claim that there is one God and only one way to reach him through his son, Jesus Christ, that's the claim that could get me into trouble. And that's the world we live in, isn't it? That's the world and society we live in. It's hostile, isn't it, to public profession of faith, particularly Christianity in this country. Do you remember this family? Do you know who they are? They're the MacArthur family, normal, everyday Christians like you and I. Uh, They happened to run a bakery in Ireland and they decided to refuse to put gay propaganda on a cake. And as a consequence of doing that, standing firm in their faith, they've been fighting a lawsuit for two years and they've lost every step of the way. Normal Christians like you and I. And then these ladies, uh, this is just two of many examples that you can find on the internet. They're nurses who were fired by the NHS for offering to pray for patients. Sad, isn't it? Really sad. But that's the world that we live in, isn't it? And I think we all feel that pressure of being a Christian in today's society. It's tough sharing the gospel with people around us, particularly at work. It's tough, isn't it? It's tough being an active and open Christian, standing up for what you believe in. And yet, our Lord tells us not to be ashamed of the gospel. And he also tells us we should go and make disciples of all people. I don't know, how how many of you have friends who say things like this? They'll say, what counts is being good. Or they'll say, it doesn't really matter what religion that you belong to, what God that you pray to. doesn't matter. They're all the same. Just don't impose your beliefs on me. That's that's what my friends tell me. And yet that attitude, if you think about it, when you look at world belief systems, that attitude that they're all the same... It's complete and utter nonsense, isn't it? They can't all be right. Belief systems, you can categorize, if you want to, into one of three boxes. Either there isn't a God, or you believe in one God, or you believe in lots of gods. But they can't all be right. Somebody has to be wrong. The world view is illogical. Now, obviously, the dominant religions are Christianity and Islam, About half the world's population now belong to one of those two faiths, or say they do. 
They believe in one God. It's very interesting. We're looking at Paul tonight. Look at Judaism. 14 million Jews worldwide compared to 2.2 billion Christians. That's 160 Christians for every Jew. So we're going to look at Paul tonight. I think the, the apostle to the Gentiles, I think he did a pretty good job. And I'm hoping what we do tonight is look at how he did it and learn from him. Now, I think when, when the Lord created mankind, he put in all of us a desire, didn't he? A desire to have a relationship with him. And yet, something has gone so badly wrong when we have all these different belief systems. And as Paul says in Romans 1.25, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Tough words, isn't it? They've worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Now, most of the early belief systems were polyatheists. They, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the pagans, they worshipped the things they saw. They had gods for everything. I guess our modern-day version of that would be uh, the Hindus, mostly in, in India, but a billion of them. And what does Paul say? They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, in Long Crendon, I don't think we come across many Muslims or Jews or Hindus, but we are surrounded by, by people who are now adherents to the third biggest belief system in the world, and that is atheists or secularism. 1.1 billion people, and I suspect quite a lot of the 2.2 billion Christians are probably also nominal in their beliefs. There is no God, is what they think. Now remember, we're wired to believe in something. We have a desire to understand why we're here, where we've come from, where we're going. And yes, atheism, which claims that there is no God, it is a belief system. We believe Darwin and his theory of evolution. We believe the scientists when they peddle theories as fact on our TV stations. We believe that life was an accident rather than designed by a creator God who has a purpose for us. We think that our ancestors were monkeys rather than know that we are the sons and daughters of the King of Kings. We, in short, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. It, it's sad, isn't it, the state of our world? Now, Paul, he faced the same issues, the same kind of world beliefs as he travels on his missionary journeys, taking that gospel to the nations. And I think we can learn from him and the method he took he preached to Jew and Gentile, Greek and Roman, people from all over the world believing all sorts of strange philosophies. And we last week we were looking uh, in Acts 16, and we were in Philippi, very small text there, but the arrows follow from Philippi. We're moving into Acts 17 now, as Paul is leaving Philippi, heading down the coast to Thessalonica, then to Berea, and finally to Athens. And what I want to do is look at the approach that Paul took. First the method of evangelism, and then the message. So the first thing I want to say really, and how does he take this gospel to the nations? 
How can we learn from him? The first thing is he was intentional in what he did. He targeted major towns. He looked for where people were. Thessalonica, the capital city of Macedonia. Athens, the seat of all intellectual learning of the day, the kind of Oxford town of its day. And if we look at our script now, in, in Acts, in, first of all in Thessalonica, if you look at verse 1, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned from scriptures. So the first thing he does when he goes to a town is goes to the, to the religious people. Jump forwards to, to verse 10. In Berea now, as soon as it was as night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas to Berea and on arriving there, where do they go? They went to the Jewish synagogue. And then jump forwards again into Athens and we look at verse 16 and 17. He's wandering around Athens. He's seeing this city full of idols. And so in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. So he starts with the church people. But then look where he goes. He reasons with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. So Paul targets in each town, he goes to the religious people, but very quickly, day by day, he goes to their workplace. He looks out people at work. In Acts 16, he sometimes, you'd read, he goes to the city gates. He's looking for people in their everyday lives. Paul was intentional and targeted in his evangelism. And so my first question for us tonight to think about is, are we intentional and targeted in the call that we have to take the gospel to people? And I know Paul was this great apostle to the Gentiles, but we are all called to share the gospel. And at church, we're preaching to the converted, a very safe environment, aren't we? But it's our neighbours and our work colleagues and our families out in the day-to-day world. They need this message of the good news, don't they, of Jesus Christ. They need to be saved. So how can we be targeted intentional? Well, I'd say let's start with praying for people. Let's pray that the Lord will show us individuals that he's calling. Let's pray that the Lord gives us opportunities to bring the gospel to people, to build relationships of trust with people around us, to uh, find the time and the right place to get into those gospel conversations. Let's pray for people and then see where God leads us. I have a testimony to share on this because I was in a church in 1999 and for the millennium year, uh, we were tasked with writing the name of three non-Christians on a card. And for the year 2000, we were to pray all year for these three people, non-Christians, that we'd put down on our cards. So I picked three blokes from work, and I spent all of 2000 playing, praying fervently for these three men. And guess what? By Christmas 2000, absolutely nothing had happened. I was hoping for salvation of all three of them. I'd not even had a discussion about the gospel with any of them. And I kind of put that exercise behind me with disgust and gave up. But about four or five years later, one of these men came into my office and he shut the door. 
and he burst into tears. He'd been living with a girlfriend and he'd two-timed her with somebody else and they'd found out and he'd got chucked out and he had a Catholic upbringing and he felt this terrible guilt, terrible remorse about what he'd done. I couldn't deal with it at work so I took him, we took him home, uh, Claire's lovely cooking, the love of the family and after dinner I just went into the lounge with him and there and then he repented and he turned to Christ. And I know that that year long of prayer, four or five years before, I know that that led to that moment. So I decided to give him the basics of the faith that he'd just entered into. So we thought we'd do an alpha course with him. And I offered, just for him, the videos, the meal once a week, and chats. But he went to work and invited more people to come on this alpha course. Guess who the other people were that came on that alpha course? The other two blokes and their partners were involved in that. God honoured that prayer, but not in the time scale that I was expecting. So let's pray for people. Let's be targeted and intentional as we pray for people for opportunities. And then let God do his thing. Okay, the next point that we can make from looking at how Paul does this is we read in verses 3 and then verse 11 that he uses his reasons with scripture. A really important point for us to make. In verse 3 it says, He reasons from scripture, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And then in verse 11, we see when he's talking to the Bereans, they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. We have to remember, scripture is the living word the living word of god it has power and i think we make a mistake when we think it's our persuasive and eloquent arguments that bring people to christ it's god who does that through his word and through the holy spirit convicting hearts and minds I prayed for my parents for about 20 years. I prayed for their salvation. I sometimes had arguments and I tried persuasive, eloquent arguments with them and it went nowhere. But about two years ago, church had been, Long Crendon had been promoting this book. It was a bright yellow colour then. It's the, the word one-to-one. Has anyone used this? Um, designed for one-to-one chats with people to go through the Gospel of John. So I picked that up and I decided once a month to go to my mum and dad's and say, would we, could we do some Bible study time? First time I've done this with them. My dad gave his life to the Lord before we got to John 3.16 and my mum a few months later. Let's not forget that there is power in the Word of God and it doesn't rely on our eloquent arguments Sharing scripture with your friends and then praying for them, I think, is the best tool for evangelism. And I think sometimes in my quiet time, I'm praying and I'm reading a a psalm or something. And suddenly there's a piece of scripture that just hits me. And I think that is so relevant for person X. And so we then have to share that with them. So I'll send an email or write a little card or send a, a mobile phone text Sharing scripture with people is, I think, what we should be doing. And then we pray for them. And then let God do the rest.
And I think most of us chicken out when it comes to sharing the gospel because I don't think we feel clever enough or eloquent enough. But God's word is already written out for us. So be be encouraged, friends. Let's share scripture and then let's see its power at work in our neighbors' lives and on our families' lives. Now, I think probably the thing that holds us back the most from sharing the gospel, I think it's the pressure of the world that we're in. It's not politically correct, is it? It's not politically correct to pray or to share the gospel, particularly when our claim is that there is one true God and the only way to him is through his son Jesus That's massively politically incorrect. It's particularly difficult when we're saying to people they're wrong, that they're sinners. They've been deceived by false teaching. We might get into trouble if we say that. We might lose our jobs like those nurses that we were talking about at the beginning. I think it's external pressure that holds us back from sharing the gospel. And yet what can we learn from Paul He was bold, wasn't he? He was determined to share the gospel with those around him. And he faced greater trials and persecution than we did. Let's look at, again, look in this text here. The Christians faced lots of opposition from all sorts of people. Verse 5. Where was the opposition there? From the Jews. They were jealous that believers were turning to Christ. And then look in verse 6. They got in trouble with the city officials. They were accused of causing trouble all over the world. And then in verse 7, look at this. They're accused of breaking the law, the Roman law, committing treason by claiming a king other than Caesar. What Paul said incited riots. It got him stoned. It got him put into prison. Eventually, he lost his life. But it didn't stop him, did it? from sharing the gospel with those that he he met day by day. So I think the challenge to us as Christians, and the question I'd ask is, are we playing it too safe? And or are we willing, like for instance the Mark MacArthur family, to stand firm in our faith and to boldly proclaim the gospel with those around us? The fastest growing religion right now is actually Islam. Huge growth. And think about what they claim. The five pillars of Islam. The first of those is the Shahada. What do they say? They say there is no God but Allah. And Muhammad is his his messenger. Muslims are unafraid to make the claim that their God is the only God. Are we, as Christians, guilty of being ashamed of the gospel in our public lives or in our places of work? Are we afraid of the consequences of being seen as politically incorrect? Well, again, I have another testimony. Claire and I are Christians today because of a man at work who was terribly politically incorrect for the gospel. I want you to imagine the scene, a sales conference with about 200 sales and marketing people, a lavish banqueting hall in a very posh hotel, pharmaceutical industry, big industry, 
and lots of people drinking lots of alcohol and having a great time with wonderful food. And then imagine this man who wanders around with a little postcard and he puts this postcard on people's dining room table places and he invites them to his room or a room that he's booked to come and pray and read the gospel with him. He goes up to people in the bar and says, would you come to a prayer meeting with me at 8 o'clock or whatever the time was? And every three or four months he would do this. And usually nobody turned up. But once in a while, one, two, three people turned up. He could have got into serious trouble for doing that. But I know it's not just Claire or I. There are several probably double-figure Christians now, today, because he was politically incorrect at work. He was bold. And I think that is what I'd like to encourage us all to be. Let's be bold for the gospel in all areas of our life. Last thing I want to look at is the message that Paul uses. He tailors this message according to, to, to who he's speaking to. So we saw earlier that the first thing he did was to go and target the religious people. He went to the synagogue. And so when he's talking to Jewish people and to Greek believers, what he does is he, he, he focuses on proving that Jesus was the Messiah fulfilling their Old Testament prophecies. That's what it's saying in verse 3. He reasons from Scripture, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And that is the USP of the Christian faith. It's the cross. The thing that differentiates Christianity from any other religion, it always is the cross, isn't it? It's Jesus. It's the resurrection. That's the difference between what Christianity offers. But in Athens, which is what I want to really focus on as we... As we look at this message, in Athens, I think Paul is facing an audience much more similar to the kind of people that we mix with. The Athenians, people in the marketplace, normal people, Gentiles, atheists, intellectuals. Don't we have lots of friends like that? People who believe all sorts of strange philosophies. So let's look at the message and the approach that Paul takes when he actually takes that message to people that we can relate to. So we read that as Paul is wandering around Athens, he's wandering around and he's distressed because this city is full of all sorts of idols. He he finds this altar and he reads the inscription on the altar. And he says, he, he can see that it says, because the superstitious Greeks are covering their bets, and it says that it's an altar to an unknown God. So he decides to open his speech, and we can see the opening of the speech in verses 22 and 23. He he tries to find common ground with them, and that's a good thing for us to learn from. Let's find common ground before we enter into gospel discussion with people. So he's looking for this common ground, and in verse 22 and 23 he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. And as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription on it that says, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, 
I am going to proclaim it to you. What he's basically telling them is, let me tell you about the God that you do not know. And we should be saying that to our friends. Let me tell you about God. And we can now look at the next part of his speech. There are four key things that he does as he communicates the gospel. And I think we can learn a lot from how he delivers the gospel. So the first key point he makes in verses 24 to 26, when you read this, he's pointing to the creator God, isn't he? He points to the God who created everything. God made everything in heaven and earth. He cannot be contained in temples. He can't, he's, he's not contained in things but built by human hands. He's the giver, the author of life. He determines where we live, how long we live, who we are. And I think to the evolutionist, Paul would still use verse 26. From one man, he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. Life was not an accident. We are not descended from apes. We were created by the very author of life. So the first thing Paul does when he's talking to people is saying, pointing them to the creator God. And then the next awesome thing that he says, and he maps this out in verses 20 to 7 to 29, he says, this creator God, he wants us, he wants you to know him. He seeks a relationship with creation. We read here, God did this, that's creation, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So we should not be afraid, folks, to say to our friends, particularly when we're looking at the beauty of creation, we should say to our friends, do you know God made that so majestic and so beautiful that when you look at it, you would marvel and you would see him and how awesome he is behind his creation. That is why God made creation so beautiful. Let's tell people that. Let's tell them that God wants a relationship with them. He wants them to worship him, not any other kind of God, any other kind of false philosophy. He wants us to know him. So let's point to the creator God and then tell people God wants a relationship with them. Then the third point that he makes in verses 30 and 31, this is a really difficult one. God calls us to repent. I think this is a message that we shy away from, but I think it's the heart of the gospel. All of us are sinners. We need to repent because soon we will be judged. That's what this is saying. And people don't like to hear that message. They think that sin is murder or stealing. And they don't realize that sin is basically our self-centeredness, our, our separation from God. And if you think about it, world religions, what do they focus on? Most religions focus on behavior. Take the Muslims the Islamic belief, you do more good in life than bad. That's what it's about. Or you look at the Buddhists and the Eastern religions, they're seeking inner peace. But how do they approach it? They look inwards. They look to self. 
rather than to God. And then let's think about our atheist friends. What do they say? They say, I'm a good person. I don't need religion to make me a better person. And what do we have to say to them? We have to say, no, we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of God's perfection. None of us can be good enough on our own. And we have to tell them, God is going to judge them and us. And we need to get right with him. Because if we don't get right, and this is something we don't talk about enough, we go to hell and we suffer eternal torment. This is a really hard message that Paul gets across as his third key point. But the atheist needs to know that death does not end in nothingness. There will be a day when all men will be held to account and judged. And that judgment will not be based on good deeds. It will be based on our hearts. It will be based on our relationship with God. Really tough message, but one we need to share with people. And then the final and probably most important point in verse 31. Jesus was raised from the death, and he is the one that is the judge of all mankind. There we have it, really, the Christian USP again, the differentiator. Jesus raised from death as proof that he was the one appointed by God. He's the one that will judge the world with justice. Think about it. Muhammad, Buddha, the Old Testament prophets, they were all men, and they died like all men do. Jesus was the only one who demonstrated this power of the creator God. He overcame death, and therefore it's only through him can we get life in him. And so when speaking to other people about our faith, it always has to come back to the cross, doesn't it? It always has to come back to Jesus and the resurrection. That is the key difference between Christianity and any other offering. Through Jesus' resurrection, he demonstrates power over death. And therefore it's only by accepting him can we be saved. There is only one God. And his son, Jesus, is the only way to salvation. That is a hugely politically incorrect statement to make, isn't it? But it's one that scripture is calling us to make. So let me close before you all fall asleep too quickly. Our motive for evangelism should not be pride. It should not be arrogance that we've got it right and everyone else has got it wrong. Our motive should be love. There are billions of people out there, billions who have been deceived. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They're destined for eternal torment unless they find out the truth about Jesus. And I think our challenge tonight is how can we help them in this? And I think we need to be following the example of Paul. Let's be intentional in our sharing. Let's pray for specific friends and neighbours. I want you to look at Acts 17. Have a look at verse 26. 
Not the bit about that says, from one man he makes every nation of men. But look at this. He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Have you ever thought and pondered on the fact that God has determined the exact place that you are living in now? He has determined your exact neighbor. He has determined your work colleagues. Have you ever pondered that maybe he's put you next to that neighbor or next to that work colleague for a gospel purpose in their lives? God has purposed us and he's put us in Long Crendon together and he wants us to be sharing the gospel with people around us. So let's be intentional as we pray for these neighbors. Let's pray for opportunities to share the gospel. And then also don't forget this other key thing, it's scripture that counts. Let's be bold as we share scripture with people. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel, even at work. And finally, let's remember that there's a huge difference in the, in the, in the message of Christianity. A creator God who is near, not far. A God who seeks a personal relationship with everybody. And he makes this beautiful creation so that we can look to him. And he seeks out his relationship with us. And he does this by sending his son, Jesus, who demonstrates this amazing power over death by rising from death after being killed on that cross. No other person and no other religion offers these things. A few years ago, I was on the Mount of Olives on holiday overlooking Jerusalem. It was my first view of the Holy City. And we were singing some praise songs. And halfway through singing these praise songs, suddenly, it was in the afternoon, the Muslim call to prayer through all these minarets started echoing this wailing sound across the Holy City. And I, my first feeling, I confess, was of anger because I felt it was an anger of this wailing sound calling people into hell. And then I felt this terrible thing that they were being deceived and I felt this sadness about what man has done to the holy city, now divided into Jewish, Christian and Muslim sectors. And then as I prayed, I realized that God... He feels these same feelings of anger and pain. But then he filled me with hope. Because I was then reminded that one day he is going to return. And one day there will be one world religion. Jesus ruling in righteousness and justice from from Jerusalem. But as we wait for that return and that wonderful hope, our job is to tell people the truth. There is one true God. And we can know him through the person of Jesus Christ. What I'd like to do is just have a moment of quiet. As you just think about your neighbours and your work colleagues. Just think, God has purposely put you in their lives. And just bring to mind, just to one or two people... And then commit to pray for them. Pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities to be bold with the gospel.
Father, we commit this week to you. We commit this month to you. And we thank you for one another, Lord. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the example of Paul. Forgive us, Father, when we sometimes chicken out of sharing uh, the good news of Jesus. And we just pray that you will give us uh, a new fervor for reaching out to the lost. We thank you that you've put in our lives, not just Christians, but people who need to hear that message of truth. They need saving from death, Lord. They need saving from eternal torment. Father, would you set us on fire for the gospel? And would you bring about the opportunities to share that gospel with people? Thank you, Father. Amen.